Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, my name is Nicholas Wittstock. I'm a fellow at the Forum. Today I'm speaking to Victor Minaldo about some of his recent work on the effects of information technology on productivity. Economists like Robert Gordon have argued that while many are currently hyping up the effects of technologies like computers, smartphones, and big data, in reality they have not had particularly impressive economic effects because they do not seem to make people that much more productive, especially when you compare them to earlier inventions. So in this episode, Victor Minaldo shares some of his research on this topic. Despite everyone talking about big tech, and um, the importance of uh, big technology firms for the U.S. and global economy, a lot of people are still pointing out that while computers and information technologies are everywhere, they don't really seem to be influencing the productivity statistics all that much. What do you have to say to that, Victor? Bob Solo originally coined that idea. It's called the Solo Paradox because he was the first or maybe the most prominent voice to raise awareness about that. And that was years ago during the 1990s, during the internet revolution, and right before the dot-com tech boom really took off on the stock market. But a lot of folks have extrapolated that insight to today, to the fourth industrial revolution around digital platforms, artificial intelligence, cloud computing and big data, and the internet of things. So in my book on the fourth industrial revolution, I actually unpack that idea. And I kind of complicate it to show that there is stratification. Uh, on average, it's true that productivity has been pretty stagnant. In fact, since the year 2000 is what I find in a firm level data set or actually several different firm level data sets. But if you actually unpack the aggregate data and look at high tech uh, firms, then in fact, they've done quite well. They're, they're remarkable, they're exceptional in that they've had pretty good productivity growth between the years 2000 and 2015. That's what I would say about that. It's more complicated than meets the eye. Did that initial statement refer to individual level productivity primarily or firm level productivity or economy-wide productivity? Right, so I use um, firm level data sets. I use several different ones, one for the United States on public firms. So those are firms that are traded on stock exchanges uh, where normal people can buy shares. Um, mm -hmm. And I also have a 5 million firm data set for the world that has a mix of private and public firms. And looking at both, I confirm this idea that if you look at firms on average, and this tracks the macro economy, there has been stagnation. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at high-tech firms, and that would include semiconductors, computer manufacturing, software, wireless telecommunications, uh, like the networks, both broadband and 5G, data processing and hosting, which includes cloud computing, like Amazon Web Services and Microsoft and Google, 
uh, IBM does a little of that too. And then when you look at computer systems design, services for computer services for all kinds of firms, IBM, that would be its specialty, for example. Um, if you look at all of those firms operating in those sectors, actually the productivity numbers look quite good. Uh, they're pretty positive. Uh, in fact, the rate of growth on average is about 3.3% per year, which actually puts those firms at the 20th century norm for productivity growth across the economy in the United States. If you strip them out and you look at non-tech firms, then there's been a reduction in productivity per year of um, about 2.7% on average. So in fact, the stagnation you see in the macro economy is due to the non-tech firms dragging that average down if you look at a firm by firm basis, and that's what I do. That sounds like a productivity polarization. Before we get to that, I have two questions that we need to clarify for our listeners. First of all, why is productivity so important? Well, if you think of productivity, and I measure it in different ways, one is total factor productivity. So that's the efficiency by which you convert inputs into outputs. Inputs would be the raw materials or some of the intermediate materials a company uses. Outputs would be uh, goods and services, uh, the quantity or the quality adjusted quantity. If you look at that, that's called total factor productivity. Uh, that matters a lot um, because it's the number one source of differences in living standards between countries. And it's the number one source of differences in success between companies. Mm -hmm. It maps onto profits as well, but not necessarily in a monotonic way, we can get into that in a second. But at least at the macro level, if on average your firms are productive, then you're going to have higher living standards. And if you think of the United States and other Western democracies after World War II, total factor productivity grew more than it ever has in the history of the world for those countries. And it explained higher real wages, lower inequality, a bigger middle class, upward mobility. I know you had Carl's Bush uh, last week talking about the welfare states that were institutionalized in the wake of World War II, a lot of it having to do with the economic growth being turbocharged by productivity improvements. Um, another thing about why this matters is that when it's high and grows faster, that is total factor productivity uh, or labor productivity, which is another one of the um, variables I look at in my book, uh, you have fewer zero-sum battles centered on redistribution or finding a way to, let's say, claw back some of a shrinking pie, and, and you get these spirals of uh, zero-sum uh, um, fighting between factions. Uh, you have more of a positive-sum economy where it's about, well, how can we distribute the surplus, uh, but not necessarily un until death or in a uh, spiral of... Um, a pitched uh, polarization or, or whatever you, you'd want to say about that. In, in previous conversations that you and I have had, we've talked about um, Robert Gordon's book about the productivity slowdown in the United States uh, that makes a similar point, right? Indicating that aggregate economic growth in the United States economy has slowed considerably. And uh, one of the major reasons for that or a corollary or correlate maybe of that is uh, the productivity slowdown as well, right? So like productivity on an individual level 
on a worker level is often also argued to be a main reason why wages have been relatively stagnant in recent years as well. So you're now pointing out that a lot of these or a lot of companies in the U.S. technology sector are especially or are actually breaking that trend, are very, very um, productive. I was intimating earlier that it sounds a bit like a productivity polarization. Is it possibly the case as um, sort of indirectly argued by previous podcasts like uh, the one with Daniel Markovitz saying that there's increasingly like a group of workers that are very, very productive, a couple of firms that are very, very productive and leaving everyone else behind? Is that a fair assessment? I think it's fair in some ways, unfair in others. Mm -hmm. It is the case that if you look at tech, it is definitely ahead of the pack, ahead of the economy in terms of total factor productivity and labor productivity. So that's what you are suggesting. So uh, tech workers are much more productive. But um, even though there are superstar firms within tech, let's just look at within tech now, not the difference between tech and non-tech. In Within tech, there's still pretty good productivity across the board. Mm -hmm. There is more variance in productivity within tech, but less than you would think. Mm -hmm. um, there are superstar firms, but their profits are compressed more so than the non-tech world, in fact. And the reason for that is the diffusion of technology. So technology diffuses quite well in the tech world. And that allows the tech world not only to be more productive than the non-tech world, the firms and workers, but within the tech world, the productivity is also pretty evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. And even though there are superstar firms that earn pretty good profits, that's actually not as big of an issue as the non-tech world, mm -hmm. where the superstar firms in the non-tech world actually earn higher profits than in the tech world. Again, that's because of technolo technological diffusion. Right. So that is the answer to the question, I suppose. The question being, why is the tech world exceptional? And the answer is because of the diffusion of technology. The argument in my book largely is about how that's happened. And that allows the tech world not only to be more productive than the non-tech world, but to have more equality and productivity within the firms in the tech world and the workers in the tech world. Okay, so could you describe how that diffusion process, um, how does that work in practice? Well, it's interesting. It has a lot to do with thinking about tech firms or tech sectors and the firms within them as clubs or networks. Mm -hmm. One of the big things I do in my book is to use network analysis to look at tech firms and non-tech firms, but mostly tech firms, and to say, actually, the way they behave are like friends or frenemies, if you will. Mm -hmm. Not that they're violating antitrust uh, re uh, regulations and laws. They're not getting together and colluding per se, but they're definitely in conversation and communication. And a lot of that has to do with their, their intellectual property rights. In fact, what's interesting about my findings is that most of the productivity in the tech world is due not to research and development, but to the diffusion of technology. So yes, there is a lot of research and development in the, in the tech world, but the number one conduit of productivity, so to speak, or transmission is the communications they have, the network type behaviors they have. A lot of it has to do with them citing each other's patents mm -hmm. or, or um, using general purpose technology in their patents that can be easily cited or 
if not copied, complemented. It, it can't be copied, that's against the law, but licensed or, or complemented by other tech firms. And one interesting thing I do in the analysis, just to start, I say, what percent of your productivity is explained by your sector's productivity? Mm -hmm. And it turns out it's 60% in the tech world. 60% of your productivity is explained by your sector's productivity which is a huge amount, uh, much more than the non-tech world. And what's happening is that a lot of these firms are speaking the same language around general purpose technologies, technologies that are widely used, such as semiconductors or wireless infrastructure. And there's a lot more standardization in the tech world. That means there are more connections between firms and definitely between the patents that these firms have in their portfolio. If I look at the citations of the tech firms, there are more backward and forward citations of each other's patents. What does that mean? They're citing each other. Mm -hmm. Now I can get into the fact that there are clear leaders that have the standardized technology and there's followers, but even if that's the case, um, there's a lot of cross-fertilization and I can get to a story. I could talk about IBM, which is a classic company you might think of when you think of this diffusion. But that's what's really interesting. Think of thinking about these firms as networks or clubs allows you to think about how diffusion takes place and it allows you to solve the mystery a, a bit better. How is this happening? It's less R&D and it's more about diffusion between firms sharing ideas. And this, um, the fact that these companies or the sectors speaks the same language, to what extent is that driven by um, what you're saying, specific intellectual property right um, regimes or norms or to what extent is this driven by a culture or ideology right is this is this a sort of a github effect is this an like open science um, open communication effect or is this um, somehow uh, possibly also driven by the technology itself i think all three okay first the type of technology is general purpose technology with a lot of applications right in the non-tech world, there's a lot less of that general purpose technology, or if there is, it's older, like electricity, for example. I mean, mm. it's something everyone has access to at this point. In the tech world, uh, what I look at, because it's much easier to quantify, are formal property rights to ideas. Mm -hmm. So I look mm -hmm. at patents, licenses, contracts, um, and citations and the like. And there you can very much see that there are stratified networks, so to speak. With, with higher density in the tech world and in some sub sectors, even higher density, and they're the more productive. Computer manufacturing, the most productive tech sector, for example, of the tech sectors, that's the subsector with the most productivity, has the highest density of the patenting um, type of conversation I'm talking about, right? But the other thing you talk about open source and the culture and the like, that I look at in, at the, in the book, but it's harder to measure, but I think that matters too. So all three matter. I can tell you the numbers on the patents and the citations and the like, but I do suspect that a lot of the cultural stuff, and that has to do a little bit more with region, um, with cities, with agglomeration effects. You, know, you had Moretti on, right? Enrico Moretti, who talked a bit about that in Silicon Valley. Uh, the tech sector in Massachusetts, maybe Seattle included. That, that's a lot about culture. That's a lot about what uh, other things about networks I could go into that I, I do less original work on. I could just cite other stuff. But definitely in the patents, it tends to mirror what you see in the culture and the open source thing. 
and the fact that it is strengthened by the general purpose technologies that these patents are codifying. Absolutely, right? But in, in the same way that, you know, if I live in Seattle and I'm, I'm working uh, in the tech sector, of course, you know, if, if this is a city that is very strongly um, built around that sector, then I'm also going to go to softball games with the same kind of people. And that's going to create some sort of uh, cross-fertilization, a process of ideas. But there's not, no reason why this shouldn't also happen in other um, uh, industries, right? So in, in that sense, it, it's not clear why that's unique necessarily to the technology sector. Well, you... again, again, I have to say that in the technology sector, a big part of it has to do with what they're doing and they're doing more general purpose technology. Right. Now, another reason I, uh, I uncover, another finding, a big one, I, I think, is that there are clear leaders. So when you think of citations, here's what's kind of counterintuitive. Most folk, not most folk, most firms in the tech sector are citing the same superstar firms or the mm. same market leaders. So there's a lot of density of citations, but often it's the same firms over and over. And those firms happen to be the ones that are most likely to have the general purpose technologies or standard essential patents, the most important patents for an application, let's say a smartphone or a modem or something like that. So that's what's interesting. There's inequality in that, I, as I said before, there are superstar firms, not only in terms of their profits, but in terms of their patent portfolio, in terms of their importance. But what's very interesting is that because these are general purpose technologies and they can be cited and licensed and worked around, the, let's say the riches are spread out more. There's mm. more diffusion. So that's what's interesting, despite the inequality, despite the superstarness of some of the firms, like you see in the non-tech world as well, or like athletes or like, uh, and sports or, or artists and musicians or the, and the like, you see more diffusion and more of a, a sharing of the spoils, more of the um, sharing of the wealth, so to speak. But also an expansion of the wealth, right? It's not just the case that if I can cite a patent that a superstar is holding, or slash I can license it. It's not that I can just cash in on some of the profits that the superstar is making, but I can actually expand the market further with my own twist on the technology or something like that, right? Nick, so well put. In fact, that is the key to dynamic innovation over time. Why is there more productivity, more efficiency, right? Not why do you reduce, let's say, deadweight losses statically. What that means is why are consumers better off, right? Um, in a snapshot, right? Why are prices lower? If you think of over time, why do consumers have access to more products at a lower price of higher quality? That's exactly what you just said, which is that together with a general purpose technology, even if there's a superstar firm that started it or innovated that technology, because others can crowd around it and there's high dense networks around it, they can push that frontier out together. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. And that's how we've gotten so many new applications around uh, let's say, uh, smartphones with applications, with the uh, digital platforms, with the gig economy. So what you said is right on in terms of explaining the macro productivity stuff, in terms of the contribution to the larger economy. Uh, I'm talking about firm level stuff, but if you think of the larger economy, these firms are pushing out the frontier, enlarging the pie. Mm -hmm. Tell the story of IBM that you were mentioning. IBM is super interesting. It's the most patented firm in history. Uh, it has 
just uh, I stop in the year 2000 and I, it's, that's for technical uh, reasons because I don't want to get into reverse causation. I want to make a causal story. So I don't want to look at mm -hmm. patterns after the productivity boom between 2000 and 2015. But stopping in the year 2000, uh, IBM had 525,000 citations to its patents. Now it's probably doubled or tripled. Uh, and for... 45,146 patents. So an average of 12 citations per patent, not bad. If you look, citations are closer to zero, right? On average, mm. uh, kind of like with academics, you know, <laughs> citations per uh, article are very low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some superstar academics that get exactly. cited a lot. In fact, IBM is like those superstar academics, right? But what's interesting about IBM, it doesn't only get cited a lot, but it cites a lot. So it has almost a one-to-one -one correspondence for every citation of its patents. It's close to one, at least in the year 2000, if you look at uh, its patent history, it cited one patent for each patent, for each IBM, IBM patent that was cited. Hmm. So you see, again, back to my network analysis, a density, so to speak, of cross-fertilization, even though it's a clear leader with patents and citations, it's also citing other firms in its industry. And if you think about after the year 2000, what, it's, was, what is its industry? It's computer systems design, uh, uh, it's computer services, like cloud computing or like analytics and the like. It's not as famous as Google or, or Amazon that have kind of eaten eaten IBM's lunch, they've become much more famous because they're digital platforms. But IBM, at least historically, was really one of the central nodes in these networks. And before computer-related services, it did the same role in computer manufacturing huh. of, let's say, laptops. And so IBM is one of the, um, I suppose, case studies in this uh, type of network, a dense network with general purpose technologies where there's a clear leader that's pretty productive, but it shares its potential pr for productivity with others, some rivals, and also other firms up and down the supply chain, like microprocessors up the supply chain or down the supply chain, it would be like software. And the reason it can do that, as I said, is it's a clear market leader that's pretty open and shares a lot. Um, and it has the general purpose technologies that can spread uh, to other uh, firms in the industry. So do you have any evidence or do you find at all that these companies are making other parts of the economy less productive? That's a really good question, Nick. I haven't necessarily looked at that in a formal way yet, in a statistical way. Everything I've been telling you, these are statistically robust findings, right? Uh, for mm -hmm. those listeners that aren't versed in statistics, I'm doing apples to apples comparisons between firms, I'm making sure to hold constant things that differ mm -hmm. among them that aren't necessarily about their uh, patent patenting uh, behavior or their network or, or whatever, or their standard is essential patents or their, um, as I said, um, general purpose technology. Uh, but I haven't been able to do an apples to apples um, evaluation of what you said, but let me tell you something. I don't think that's happening. Now, on the one hand, there's not a lot of diffusion taking place, most likely, between high-tech and non-high-tech because of the data patterns I told you in terms of the productivity statistics and the profit statistics. 
But I don't think it's necessarily taking something away from the non-tech firms. The question really is why have the non-tech firms not been able to create these networks that are open, that are sharing, that yes, might be about these leaders that are the nodes, that are the central figures, but that are uh, complementary to the other players in that network. I'm not sure why that hasn't happened as much, but well, I am kind of sure that it has to do with the nature of the technology in some respects, but I haven't been able to say anything uh, definitive about whether the tech firms are somehow making it harder for these non-tech firms to get into these clubs and the like. But let me tell you why my suspicion is that if anything, it's the opposite, that eventually right. things will trickle out. And that's because if you look at the technology, it's not only, let's say, IBM doing computer services in terms of cloud computing for other computer companies. Uh, or Google, uh, Amazon, um, Microsoft, um, these are other companies that do the same thing. It's that if you look at what's happening with these general purpose technologies and where these networks are happening, it's around modem technology and wireless devices. It's around data transmission, which uh, allows you to achieve higher data rates and better system throughput, which is what it, 5G is about, right? Uh, wireless uh, connections through cellular networks today um, that are much higher, uh, uh, much faster, lower latency, for example. It's around something called carrier aggregation, which is higher capacity data networks from a fragmented radio spectrum. This uh, is also connected to the 5G revolution. It's about battery solutions, like enhanced sleep modes that enhance battery life for all matter of devices. And basically it's about better allocation of data resources, right? Finding ways to connect devices, this could be the internet of things or to connect different smartphones or even different cell towers. So you have better data use, higher efficiency use of data. And all of that should matriculate into the non-tech world eventually. There's no reason why this kind of stuff should bar non-tech companies from emulating what the tech world is doing. So one of the speculations I have in the book is that it's a matter of time. There's a lagged effect, so to speak. And before we know it, it'll happen. There'll be like there was with electricity or with steam before electricity uh, or with other technologies. Eventually there'll be the ability of non-tech firms, so to speak, to become more like the tech firms and to use general purpose technologies in ways that will make them more productive and their workers more productive. Could you speculate on how these technologies would make workers more productive? And, and what or who would be the kinds of workers that would be complementary to those technologies? Well, okay, again, they've already made workers more productive in the tech world, mm -hmm. right? Labor productivity has improved and total factor productivity has improved. And that's because workers that are highly educated, this is something you brought up in your last uh, podcast and in several, right? Tell me about what you've learned about that with all your guests. It seems to me hard not to conclude that these technologies are primarily making extremely well-educated people more productive and that they're generally making a lot of um, people who aren't necessarily all that well-educated possibly less productive. I'm not sure if that's a general effect of technology as such, but um, But, but that would be my assessment, right? That it's especially and only or exclusively very well-educated people that are being made more productive. 
Well, again, that's not the case in the tech world. Yes, they're leading the charge, right? But across tech firms, even their non, let's say, white collar workers are more productive than non-tech firms. Now, are they as productive, let's say, as the white collar workers designing the technology? No, there is higher variance, so to speak. It's not very great, but there is higher variance in productivity within the tech world, right? So yes, the gulf between white collar workers and blue collar workers in a tech firm might be pretty large, but if you compare the blue collar workers in the tech firms to the blue collar workers outside of the tech firms, right. the blue collar workers are doing better in the tech firms. So they're also benefiting from the technology being diffused, right? And so again, why is it? Imagine someone working at an Amazon warehouse that has access to big data and artificial intelligence. They can be more productive. They can use the skills they have as human beings in a way that complements the technology and the technology can do the brute force analysis, let's say, about how to sequence, let's say, the delivery of stuff to a warehouse mm-hmm. or how to sequence how you put it onto a truck. So that's why I'm a little circumspect that it's actually some zero something where it's making other people worse off. I'd rather say, as I just said, What's happening is the technology is not diffusing outside of the tech world as much, right? That's what I think is happening. And once it does, I think maybe there might be just as much as a gulf between white and blue collar workers in the non-tech world, right? But the, the blue collar workers will be more productive the way blue collar workers in the tech world are. See what I'm trying to say? I know it's a lot of different comparisons. No, I, I, I see, I think, what you're saying. Um, how much more profitable, you mentioned that profits are compressed within the technology sector. Um, aren't these companies a lot more profitable than the rest of the economy? Well, that's what's really interesting, Nick. As I said, there are superstar firms in the tech world, mm-hmm. okay? And they're very profitable. But if you actually think about the distribution of profits in the tech world, it's actually slightly more compressed, and it depends on the sector, right? But Mm -hmm. slightly more compressed than the non-tech world. And the reason for that, again, is that the technology diffuses much more readily in the tech world than in the non-tech world. And so basically, profit margins are actually on average lower in the tech world. So I know it sounds crazy because we always think about these superstar firms like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple, right? But if you just put them aside for a second and think of their rivals, right? Or Mm -hmm. think of other firms in the supply chain. Okay, a rival to Google would be, I guess, Microsoft with Bing or uh, DuckDuckGo, I think is another search engine, right? Or or, um, Mm -hmm. in that space. Um, Or if you think of... uh, in the supply chain uh, for any given, let's say smartphone, if you think of the chip manufacturers, if you think of the retail sector that sells the phones, if you think of the software developers, there's actually more compression in the profit margins and on average lower profit margins in the tech world because of this diffusion of technology. 
That's not to say that tech margins haven't increased. They have increased over time. So between the year 2000 and 2015, again, that's the big window of my analysis. They've increased by about 4.4%. But there's been a slight deterioration, actually more than slight, to less than 3% for tech firms between 2007 and 2015. That's not the case for non-tech firms. Non-tech firms have had a steady improvement in their profit margins and have had higher profit margins between 2000 and 2015. So not only on average higher profit margins, but a steady improvement over that time period. Whereas in the tech firms, the profit margins are lower because of the phenomenon I discussed. And over time, they've actually gotten even lower and become more compressed. Now that doesn't mean that they don't have higher levels of profit margins. I'm really talking about the growth in a sense. Right. So they start out with higher levels because they're more productive. But if you think about the growth in profits, they've actually been growing lower. And over time, there's been a decline in the trajectory versus for non-tech firms, there's been an increase. Despite the fact that there hasn't been as much technological diffusion among the non-tech firms. So when people talk about market power or they talk about, uh, they use the word monopoly a lot. I don't know if they know what they mean when they use that. It's a very technical term from microeconomics about the elasticity of the supply of different goods and services. But when they talk about that, it's actually more appropriate to discuss the non-tech world than the tech world. If you just think about what I'm telling you when it comes How big is that industry as you define it relative to the U.S. economy? In terms of just the number of firms or in terms of their contribution to productivity or what do you mean? Uh, Contribution to GDP was my idea to give a sense of like how, how relevant is this sector? So I don't have that information off the top of my head. Roughly it's about 30%. Um, All right. So just to conclude, um, what are barriers to wider diffusion? of the productivity that this sector is creating. And what might be, or related to this question, what are policy issues that people do not pay enough attention to? Okay, let's think about sociology for a second. And let's think about maybe what Enrico Moretti talked about when he talked about um, Silicon Valley and, and that kind of stuff, that kind of network. What are social networks in terms of the tech world, in terms of geography at least? It's a bunch of senior managers. It's a bunch of folks above them, venture capitalists. It's a bunch of founders, right? That are responsible for not only creating, but diffusion, diffusing the culture, right? Mm. Of science, engineering, technology, uh, of software design, right? Uh, Of design of um, silicon chips, right? By sharing information and by sharing employees and by hopping from job to job or by founding new firms, that's how you get to sharing with people in geographical space. A lot of times skilled individuals will create these dense social networks by linking to key personnel across their career that they take with them from firm to firm. Or if you think about venture capitalists, if if you think about the people they're in communication with, right? And this is, again, going, nothing I've ever said originally. This is stuff I'm citing in terms of the literature on social networks in the tech world, right? 
if your startup fails, you start again. If your startup succeeds, maybe you cash out and start again. And you're in communication with the same people, with the same firms, with the same venture capitalists, right? Now, if you think about the networks I'm discussing, they're more intangible or they're less geographic, but it's the same idea where you're using the intellectual property, you're using the technology, you're using the standard essential patents and the standard essential patent networks that put together, you know, what's gonna go in the best practices for a modem or for a smartphone or for wireless communications. When those people get together or when they cite each other's work or when they license each other's work by taking out a patent license on a patent that Qualcomm puts out for the design of, a, let's say, chips that go into a modem, those folks, in a sense, are part of a culture, they're part of a conversation, they're part of a society. So the question is, how will this spread outside of the tech firms? How will this consolidate across the entire economy? These general purpose technologies that are general purpose now to the tech world would have to be more ubiquitous and easier to use. And they'd have to become more standardized mm. and they'd have to be able to be used by folks with, let's say, less human capital, more blue collar, let's say, less edu education needed, right? And that's already happening, Nick, if you think about it, right? After the pandemic, uh, the spread of Zoom, the spread of apps that allow you to do health technology, health services online the ability to track things with apps, more people using Amazon to buy things, more familiarity with uh, th that interface will lead to perhaps better applications that are more ubiquitous and are even more generalized. That's what I suppose I'd speculate in terms of how this might play out. And then on the policy implications, I would say a lighter touch is important if some of the big leaders in the tech community, the superstars are rolling out the general purpose technology. And even though, yes, they are more productive and have outsized profits, as I said before, they're sharing the wealth with other tech firms in terms of diffusing this stuff. Now, if they could be allowed to, or if there are ways to help them diffuse that stuff outside of the tech sector, that would be even better for white collar workers, blue collar workers, in terms of productivity in the non-tech sector, it'd be better for consumers, it'd be better for the whole economy. So those would be the policy implications. Victor Minaldo, thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.